Welcome back to the Alt Centrism Central podcast. Welcome to episode three. Today's topic is going to be on the political divide in America, polarization and radicalization, as well as political violence. Today we have two guests, one from the right and one from the left, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Alvin. Um, twenty. I just turned twenty-four yesterday. Um, Thank you. I studied English in college, but um, uh, if I'm being honest, I think political science is far more interesting. So I know a little more about that, I guess. Um, and um, uh, I would describe myself as a progressive uh, social democrat in uh, policy. All right, awesome. Uh, thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Mr. Novak, I'm 28 years old. I live in the Midwest. I graduated with a bachelor's in business administration. I am what we will, I'm sure, discuss, a product of radicalization. I identify as a white identitarian, um, and we'll make the distinctions on that. I have been pretty much, in one way or another, uh, interested in and somewhat advocate, advocating for both left and right um, since my early 20s as I kind of learned these things. And I now am concerned with the future of the United States, and I feel like this might be the only uh, strategy moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, awesome. So, uh, does anybody have any starting thoughts, anything that they would like to open up with on the topic of political polarization, radicalization, and violence? You have something, uh, Mr. Novak? Can I go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it is clear that polarization is, in fact, happening. Um, it's one of the few topics that I don't think is disputed anymore. I think the only thing that we're seeing in terms of how this polarization is taking place is, is the right moving further right? Is the left moving further left? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, there, I, I personally believe there is an imbalance uh, on this. I do believe the left is moving further left. And we can see that whether it's the moving of the Overton window, whether we see it's the, what I would consider desperation by Republicans uh, via the uh, election of Donald Trump. But I do believe polarization is a serious issue, and I think it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. Can I ask you a quick clarifying question about that? Yes. Um, so do you believe in asymmetrical polarization? You said something uh, about the left moving further left. Uh, do you believe that the left is moving further left at a faster rate than the right is moving further right? I do believe that. I've seen certain evidence that suggests that the left is moving further left at a faster rate than the right. I think the right really is somewhat confused in what direction they want to go. I think there's mainly just desperate attempts to uh, stay relevant or at least stay within some sort of political um, relevancy on a federal level. Um, whether it's Pew Research or a few other um, academic articles I've seen, the advocacy of certain policies, the overall cultural opinion, and the um, sharp increase in self-proclaimed socialists as opposed to liberals or centrists in the last several years tells me the left is moving further left at a faster rate. All right, Alvin, you want to respond to that? Uh, I mean, I generally agree with, uh, I'd say about a little more than half of what he said. Right, Like he said, uh, I think we reached a point where the polarization is so apparent, no one was actually paying attention denies it. Um, I, uh, my main problem with polarization is that I think that if you reach such a fever pitch that you will see more uh, violence. Um, and I, my bigger problem, well, I should say bigger problem, this is an equally big problem, is that it's going to make government more unstable, right? I mean, this year we just witnessed um, the longest uh, government shutdown in American history, right? And to me, that's a byproduct of like, the polarization that's increasing in the country. And my, my worry is that we're going to only become so much more polarized that our government is going to become even like less functional. 
right? And if we don't act quickly, right, we will be surpassed by other countries eventually if this polarization continues. Um, you know, and and uh, it, it doesn't seem like we want to compromise anymore, right? And I understand sometimes I don't really want to compromise on issues either, right? But, you know, we have worked best in a way when we have compromised, right? Like the Constitution itself is a compromise. Um, so I don't know, it, look, look, going forward, um, I want to say that I actually disagree with Novak. I think the right uh, has been a long trajectory since the 1960s. Um, radicalization like we have like actual data right so going back to the civil rights act and things like that uh yeah i mean this thing that that this roots earlier i would say as far back as the 1930s but yeah it's the 60s where you see things just really start catching up and um i think that we're gonna go further into this right but uh i think that the left is now moving further left as well right but i think the left is just catching up to where the right has been heading for just decades now okay um, so just just a, a little bit of a quick history. I just want to throw this in here. Uh, polarization is certainly not a new thing in history whatsoever. Uh, if you think about you, you know around the time of the invention of the printing press and uh, Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, uh, they since the uh, availability of information uh, was you know every, everybody had a greater access to information than they did just a few years ago. At that point, uh, the the, the amount of ideas that were shared and spread, uh, it, it created a lot of polarization, for sure, and there were many wars that were fought over it, so it can certainly lead to violence, and there's a historical precedent for this. So I just, I just want to uh, throw that out there, that this is not a new issue. Right. Um, if, if neither of our guests actually have like something that they think is urgent, I did want to ask a question. That I think is going to be important moving forward. Uh, I wanted to ask for your guys' definition of what left and right really is. Um, I'm going to throw out my definition, and you guys can agree, disagree, and discuss it. But my okay. definition is: if you're left wing, you're more for an egalitarian and more for equality. And if you're right wing, you're more for a hierarchy, whether that be a state-enforced hierarchy or natural hierarchies. I think it depends on the time frame that you're talking about. Uh, current day. I'm, I'm talking about. I'm talking about modern sense, regardless of country. Just the general philosophical definition. Okay. I, I would. Uh, I would definitely agree with that definition. Um, I don't know if Novak has different thoughts though. Yeah, I think that definition is more or less correct. Uh, I would expand it to different uh, other different factors, but from what you said, yeah, I, I agree with that dichotomy for sure. Okay. I, I think that's just going to be important. I would ask what you mean by egalitarianism. Also, I also, say, I would ask what you mean by equality. Like, in what sense? Exactly. I would say, I would say that the idea. So, if you were as left as possibly as a human being could be, you think that everyone is the same and that everyone is of equal worth and everyone should have equal status in society. You've been talking about this a lot recently. This, this goes back to like code BS philosophy right here. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't 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 bring up weep shit on the podcast before, you know. <laughs> Alright, yeah, so going with uh, that definition, what are your thoughts on that? Anybody? On uh, the definitions of left and right? No, 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 uh, about uh, equality. Um, you know, the, the left, uh, he's saying that the left wants more and more equality, especially in terms of human worth, whereas the right uh, wants a lot less of that, I think. Uh, I actually jump right into it, right? I mean, there's no need to sugarcoat things. Obviously, the left wants a more social egalitarian system, right? And this is going to include all types of minority groups. It's going to include transgender people. It's going to include gay people. It's going to include black people, Hispanics. 
quite like the whole shebang, right? And and I think that on the opposite opposite side, the opposite side of this, right, it's people who are, tend to be more Christian, tend to be uh, white, tend to be um, older, right? These are people who tend to want to like maintain the hierarchies they grew up right post World War II, right? Because uh, I'd be at this point, most generations after the boomers have been long deceased, right? So my point is, is that like yes, you're not people on the right don't like change, right? Whether that 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 fear is justified or not is a totally different question. But I think that um. I think that the left wants change. I think the left wants a more multiracial, uh, egalitarian, accepting society. Well, the right wants their more traditional white Christian base. So, so and, let me let me just ask you a stemming from wanting a white Christian America. Okay, let me just ask you a quick clarifying question about that because you mentioned that uh, most of the time these older white Christian males they want to keep the hierarchy in which. I'm sorry, older white Christian people they they want to keep the hierarchy that they uh, that they grew up in. Um, and so it, it, my question is, do you think that they believe what they believe because that's uh, how they were raised or because that's uh, what they believe in? Do you think that there's any actual uh, evidence that they have that they've researched their, uh, their opinions, they've made up their own minds on things, or do you think that's just the way that they were raised and that they're afraid of change? I mean, I think it's both. I mean, first of all, I don't think most people actually just, this is not just a right thing, this is a left thing, right thing. I don't think most people just sit down and really know thoroughly examine their beliefs right most people are like just like take and accept the beliefs were given at you know in childhood right i think Agreed. that's yep. most people um but what i would say that is that yes some of them probably have sat down and researched this and thought about it and decided you know what i, I like this worldview, right and if they've done that then you know kudos to them right um but i mean it's not like this or that it's it's definitely both okay um i have a question um as far as hierarchies go would you separate natural and unnatural hierarchies as in i i personally think that unnatural hierarchies are absolutely despicable and hierarchies that have no real weight in the natural world shouldn't be acknowledged ideally but hierarchies such as hierarchies of physical strength mental ability that sort of thing do you think those are acceptable in a leftist society well i mean how else are you gonna fight it I mean, how? I mean, there is a natural hierarchy of intelligence. I don't think anyone denies that, right? Like, how? How do you lower everyone to the same level? You'd be surprised. Maybe no one in this uh, conversation, but that is certainly uh, getting a lot of pushback, and it has for the last fifty years. But well, from the scientific evidence I've seen, yes, there is like a natural distribution of like intelligence in the human species, right? And I mean, it's not the most comfortable thought, right? Because we we one tend to have this ethos of hey, if you work hard enough, you can make it somewhere, right? But the unfortunate mm-hmm. truth is, no, you have to have some modicum of intelligence and perseverance and tenacity and ambition to, to get somewhere right like unfortunately i will never be a world-class physicist i just do not have the mathematical abilities for that i can sit there and work my ass off all day and it would just never happen right and i'm at peace with that because i hate math right <laughs> the, the point is is that you know we all can't be famous we all can't be rich because if we're all rich and famous then no one would be rich and famous so here's here's a question uh acknowledge, acknowledging that reality do you think that it is acceptable to uh, construct artificial hierarchies to change that or correct that? Uh, as long as it's justified, right? Like, I, I mean, the thing is, again, maybe I'm not, I keep assuming that other ones, maybe I'm wrong, right? I think that there's some hierarchies that are justified, right? I don't have a problem with hierarchies as long as they actually make sense, right? Just like I think that a parent should be above a child, right? That, that type of hierarchy. I think it's, that's the hierarchy that makes sense, right? I do have problems with other types of hierarchies, right? I have a problem with a hierarchy where, let's say, in Jim Crow, where whites had just every single advantage over blacks, right? And because of natural ability, because there was a system in place that kept blacks down, right? So, mm-hmm. so I'm sorry, what was your, I forgot what was your full question again? Well, my question is, do you support creating um, artificial hierarchies to 
to correct some of the wrongs that you may that you might see in natural hierarchies uh, as kind of a follow-up to Ellie's question. What do you mean? We mean create, I mean, you usually want to dismantle hierarchies that make sense. You wouldn't want to create another one. Well, okay, let, 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 me be, let me be a little bit more specific then. Um, so, like, uh, on the lines of we were talking about differences in intelligence between people earlier, uh, acknowledging that some people are different biologically, uh, do you think that no, it's I okay to create artificial... Uh, go ahead with your example then, Ellie, uh, since, so, since you asked the original um, question. The earnings gap is a perfect example of this. It's a naturally occurring hierarchy of earnings that is going to exist regardless of how many equal opportunities women have to men. Paying women more to correct that would be a hierarchy that places women above men as far as earnings uh, go. Would that be justified to make the earnings themselves more equal? Because of because of reasons like they have to give birth, right, and they gotta take care of their kids, or things like that, right? Or just, or just Which that, helps. for one reason or another, women choose to take different paying jobs or jobs that work less hours, or things like right. that. Right, right. Okay. Men okay. take I, more dangerous jobs. Men are more willing to move. They're willing to work longer hours. There's there's multiple different variables that yes. are creating the disparity. If I could ask Ellie a question real quick, do you think? that the disparity between pay and um, between men and women when it comes to sexism has been solved or is at least no longer a uh, wide, wide-ranging social issue? Do you think that's been pretty much alleviated? Uh, if if uh, women did as much work on average as men, no company would ever hire men. If they're truly working for less money for the same amount of work, no company would ever hire men. Right. It's, it's not an issue of sexism, it's an issue of demographics. And if women want to close the wage gap, I guess, uh, don't be a teacher, be a petrol engineer. Right, there is a huge um, push socially to have women uh, more active in STEM fields. And, you know, the petroleum engineer is actually one of the highest paying degrees coming out of uh, universities right now. Given that we see examples of things in um, like Sweden and Norway where the opportunities have never been more widely available to women and they're still not picking these STEM fields, do you think that the social pressure to push them into it is um, unnecessary or perhaps even counterproductive? Of course it's unnecessary. It... STEM program... They... In elementary schools, they push a lot of girls into STEM programs and they do way worse mm-hmm. because the men, well, the little boys have to work way harder to get into those programs because they're not automatically assumed to be more downtrodden in their social ability. It creates a very interesting dynamic of selecting like the more to, qualified can, can, men. Can I respond to this? Yeah, Absolutely. I'd like, I actually like to hear your opinion on this because I, I have a feeling that you could... Alright, so, I mean... The, I'll admit it, I'm a bad lefty in the sense I haven't really looked much into, like, pay and quality between genders, right? I've looked a bit into it. But I do know this one thing, right? I've spoken to some of my friends who are also left-wingers, right? And he actually told me that um, in Eastern Europe, right, for example, the, the, the disparity in STEM between men and women is much, much smaller, right? It's, it's about, like, 50-50%, right? So if we can look at Eastern Europe, right, and we're seeing a society in which men, men and women are both entering STEM fields at an equal rate, Right. I think that, that, that that's an argument to make that it might be culture. Right. Like, what, what are we doing culturally different that women in that in that society over there um, seem to do seem to go into the same way as men, but here they're not. Yeah. Because uh, uh, is, is, is that 
I would question how well they do and how far they go in their field. And what is creating that 50-50 representation? Is it a different culture or is it uh, political and uh, state legal pressure? That's something I'd be interested to see. Or even social pressure. Well, I think that um, the Eastern Europeans, or particularly the Russians, right, they have to just, they try to foster this culture that was very science-based, right? Like, there's a reason they beat us in almost every, like, example in the space race, right? And they at least had to pretend, right, to care about social egalitarianism, right? Because for a long, until very recently, they were technically a socialist state. So I can see why, for example, they would have pushed women into sciences because, you know, they're supposed to, like, be up, they're supposed to be upholding these types of ideals. Um... So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why, right? Like, my, my, I'm just saying, like, we can actually look at a certain society on Earth and say, well, this society does seem to have fixed the disparity between, uh, in the STEM field, between men and women. But the I Russians know, ended up losing the space race. I mean, they were doing they were doing pretty good in the beginning, but we totally well, surpassed they, them because, by the end. I mean, today I was speaking with some people who, who actually know about the Soviet Union, and they actually beat us in every category except reaching the moon, right? They put the first person in space, <clears> that's the, right. first woman, the first woman in space, the first animal in space, the first satellite in space. They put this, the, the first... Um, well, they may not you, have put the same person in, Once you put one thing in space, you can put anything in space. The Americans may have put the right, first object in space in 1953 when we launched a manhole with a nuke that we put underground. It's unconfirmed because we don't know where the manhole went, but it is very possible that we actually did launch the first object into space with nukes. <laughs> sure, but we're not sure about that, but it has confirmed that Sputnik, right, that's not America, that's not American name, right? that was the first thing in space, right? Like, literally the only thing we really beat them in, and the, the reason we think we won the space race, right, is because we won, we won the optics battle, right? Putting a man on the moon looks a lot more impressive and, you know, in more of like a poignant moment than, you know, putting a monkey in space or even putting a man in space, right? Really. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Do you actually believe that we landed on the moon? <laughs> I saw this coming. Alvin's definitely correct that when it comes to individual laps on the space race, they did beat us on everything. But I think we did win, uh, you know, the grand finale. I would be interested in seeing, and I, I'm not sure about this at all, on whether or not the insistence on having equal representation between men and women was actually a contributing factor to their success. Perhaps it was, perhaps not, but... I don't think I don't think uh, it, we can look at that and see that a causal effect when it comes to the success of space exploration during the space. Oh yeah, race. I'm not claiming that. I'm, so, I'm just saying that the Soviet Union had like this culture right, like really focused on like the science and the maps. You know, like that. That's basically um, what I'm saying. I agree. With that. I, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to really cut this conversation off, but I want to make sure we get to some of the other stuff because I, I love this conversation. But I really wanted to get to the topic of political violence. So sure. uh, I kind of wanted to drift to that, uh, if that's okay with everybody. Unless somebody has a point that they feel like they absolutely need to make. Uh, I just checked to see if I was recording. And thank God I was, because I thought I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah, let's move in. All right, yeah. So I wanted to ask the question to open it up, because I think this is the most important thing when talking about political violence, is... Is political violence ever acceptable? And I'll let either one of you Good question. Um, you, yeah. You, you, want, you want to go first? You want me to go first? If, go ahead, man. All right, so when I was in college, right, I had a friend, and she was, uh, she was in her PhD, right? And um, she invited me to this thing with all her PhD friends once, right? So it's pretty cool. It's like I'm just like a measly undergrad, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I sit down, right, and they're discussing, they're actually discussing civility, right, like this was the topic these PhDs were discussing. And they introduced me to a, a concept called the, the paradigm of civility, right? 
paradigm of civility basically is in the United States, political violence is like always 100%, no matter who it is, which ideology is, it's unacceptable, right? Like you just don't do it. Doesn't matter if you're in the left or the right or you're a centrist. Doesn't matter if you hate abortions or, you know, whatever the issue is, you just don't ever do it, right? You always talk things out, right? It's like ingrained in our culture, right? What's funny to note about this is that our country was not founded on this the paradigm of civility, right? Like our, the founders literally did armed insurrection. Um, so, you know, it, it's funny to note this because they were actually criticizing, in a sense, the, the paradigm of civility, right? Because to them, they say, you know, there is a time where you have to step up and knock someone the hell out. You know, that that's, you know, these PhDs were like literally radicals. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know if they fully convinced me, but it, it made me aware now that, that there was this paradigm among us, uh, amongst us, right? Like this thing that we never really even questioned, right? Because they were making the argument that, yes, there was certain times where you should break the paradigm, right? Uh, this might not be the best example, right? But think of uh, the Yellow Vest protests in France, right? They used violence to get their point across, right? Over here in the United States, we had the longest, um, we had the longest uh, shutdown, right? There are people not getting paychecks, right? Uh, a friend of mine told me, he said, dude, if they did this shit in France, they probably would have rioted over there, right? But in America, we, we just don't do that, you know? We're taught to be more civil, we're taught to be more polite, we're taught that no matter how angry we get, you know? Uh, you could also away. point to Hong Kong going on right now. It's gotten increasingly yeah. <clears throat> right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting in there, right? That that you know, paradigms tend to be like the air, right? Where it's everywhere, but we don't even notice it, right? So you know, how many of us are still working under this paradigm, right? And how many of us are not seeing that? Hey, maybe political violence. I'm not again. I'm not advocating violence, right? But you have to pose the question, right? Is political violence ever acceptable? Is there a time where it's actually okay to do? Um, is the paradigm of civility preventing us from seeing this? So, to, to be fair, the Founding Fathers did try, uh, with the exception of uh, uh, John Adams, he, he always advocated Revolutionary War, like, uh, f from early on, but they tried a lot of things before declaring war. They, I mean, they tried the uh, Olive Branch Petition, or, is that what it's called? Sure, but the point is that's not how they solved it today, right? Like, that's true. I think most people, right, most sensible people, right, even though we could have very desperate worldviews, right, I think most people will try to sit down and try to reach some middle ground, some compromise, right, as attentions tend to flare up eventually, right, you just, people, sometimes people come to the same realization, there is no way out of this, but fighting for what we think are right, fighting for, fighting for the worldview we think is correct, right, mm -hmm. so, you know, that's kind of what happened in the Civil War too, right? You had you had both factions repeatedly doing compromise. You had the Missouri Compromise, right? You had the Constitution as a compromise. You had the um, Kansas-Nebraska Compromise. You had all these series of compromises, right? Even in 1860, right? You had the Creighton Compromise, which failed to pass, right? But you had a series of compromises between the North and the South trying to prevent the Civil War from occurring. These people just didn't go to war, right? They tried talking about their problems. Right, and things still boiled over. Uh, tension still continued to grow. Um, but, yeah, are you... Yeah, Did you want to continue? Okay. Um, to answer your question, yes, there is scenarios where clearly political violence is probably going to be necessary. I mean, we can all envision a world where if the state were to take certain actions, we would feel the need to physically push back on it for our own, you know, our own individual rights or freedom or to protect ourselves from some sort of totalitarianism or even downright slavery. Like there are situations are going on right now where it is probably justified. If we look at the situation in the United States, the, 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 the reality is, is if we can't compromise on things, we can't talk, communicate, we can't come to some sort of agreement, our values, our politics, our policies, our beliefs, our morality, our ethics become more and more antithetical, then the tensions are going to rise. We all see that right now. We feel it. We can tell when we talk to people. It's, it's part of the current zeitgeist and 
everyone agrees that this is only going to continue to get worse. I do have a lot of concern, and I, I want to just say I agree with Alvin at the very beginning when he talked about polarization, that violence is going to continue because both sides more and more are done trying to compromise. I think the right is still doing what they can to open up dialogue, but, and perhaps this is just my bias, but I think the left is pretty well done discussing things. I think a lot of it is the right's fault. I don't think we have anything to bargain with. I think we've been spinning our wheels for decades. I think that when it comes to the reality of how people actually vote and how people's politics are actually formulated on a um, collective scale, that the left knows they don't really need to compromise with this anymore. Unfortunately, and we saw this with the election of Donald Trump, there's still enough people who are not down with what the current left is doing. And that's creating a lot of tension. Whether it's Proud Boys, whether it's Antifa, whether it's uh, politically driven mass shooters, we're seeing a political degree or aspect of this in all of these different uh, scenarios. Charlottesville, I mean, these flashpoints are getting more and more frequent. Our political elite really don't know what to do, or they just give lip service to, well, violence isn't the answer, just like he talked about with our current paradigm. I think that is very, perhaps not unique to the United States, but it's certainly part of our normal decorum is we can talk this out, we don't have to fight. Um, I think it goes much deeper than that. I think a lot of it has to do with our standard of living. I think things can get extremely bad for a whole lot of people, but we're comfortable enough that we'll put up with it or deal with it. That many people think that violence is not an option, but when everything else is not working, things continue to get worse, um, depending on your worldview. When has that become an option for certain people? And I think that option is becoming more and more appealing, maybe, to a small group of people, but is slowly growing as the polarization continues. You know, Novak, you, you set up something really interesting that I, I feel like I've, I've like thought at a very superficial level sometimes, right? But like you, you kind of made me think a little deeper about it. In that you said that one of the reasons why less people, right, do not see violence as uh, appealing, right, is because, well, it's a messy business, right? But the more important thing is that um, that people are comfortable, right, because of the standard of living, right? Yes. And my, my biggest fear, and this is like my doomsday scenario, which I, I don't think is going to happen, right, but it, it's still in the back of my mind, right, is that if we were to have another economic recession or even, God forbid, a depression, right, and the standard of living does start to collapse, right, and, and unemployment reaches, like, even, like, higher levels than the Great Recession was, right? Then, then you, you, you lose that standard of living, right? Then you lose that one thing that maybe was holding you back a bit more, right? Right. Uh, and, and, I mean, that's that's why I'm always concerned about the economy. You know, I mean, yes, you lose jobs. Yes, people are unemployed. Yes, people lose their pensions. Yes, it's a very fucking pessimistic atmosphere, right? But I think it makes people more prone to radicalization. I think it makes, it makes people more prone to violence. And it, it makes, and it just increases the polarization in the United States. Right. I mean... I think we can all agree, especially as someone who's a disgruntled conservative. Um, I know many conservatives, especially the older ones, who will complain about everything they see, everything that's going on, and they've been pretty much frustrated with everything that's been going on for the last 45 years. But I know, and yes, yes, um, I have other words for them too, but uh, we'll move on. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, and this is just the reality that the right needs to either accept, I'm not sure if I want them to accept this or not, but nothing we say is going to convince enough people on the left to move to the other side of the aisle because again we don't really have anything especially um you know in the age of modernity that's appealing enough for people to be like yeah i think uh, i think we'll vote republican i mean you see and this is also an issue of the two-party system i think we all can recognize that but 
just like almost every other issue, unless you're extremely empathetic um, towards those who are suffering, not much is really a concern or a problem for you unless it starts to hit you over the head. Like, no one's concerned about famine in the United States. In fact, it's kind of the opposite problem right now. No one's concerned about um, their basic needs being met. And so these social issues that are happening, this culture war, is many levels above what would be required for people to take action en masse. And so that's why I think continuing escalation is going to happen until it's whittled down to enough people where more significant violent events happen and more uh, serious actions need to be taken, whether that's from the state or the populace. It's hard to say. I don't think, and I think I want to make this very clear, I don't think a civil war is going to occur in the United States. I think we will see different violent actions happening uh, sporadically. I don't think it'll be some sort of collective movement from any radical group, uh, specifically with the right. And I think that despite all this violence, we're not going to see a civil war scenario as we would traditionally think it would be. Um, we're just going to see a continually continuing bubble and boiling of political radicals. And I think eventually the left is going to overwhelm almost all aspects that are left of the right when it comes to culture, society, and political enfranchisement. And that's how it'll end. The bad news is that is decades away. And it, it, it's so sad to say this, but a lot more people are going to die because of this current political polarization. Um, because not enough people are concerned about it. It's We all know how short-term the memory of the public is. I mean, we had one of the, we had the biggest mass shooting, what, a year and a half ago, Las Vegas? That is just completely out of the mind of everyone. The news cycle goes and continues 24-7, 365. I think the mainstream or normie memory is about 72 hours, depending on how bad it is. And then it's just out of sight, out of mind. And this constant short-term, um, I guess, awareness of certain issues is going to be a contributing factor to escalation. Um, among many other things. So that's 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 a lot to digest from from both of you, Alvin. You you touched on how economics is going to play a big role in further polarization and even radicalization, and Mr. Novak, uh, you touched on the fact that a lot of people aren't you know don't really have the uh, mental capacity at least in terms of you know there are so many issues to grapple with that you kind of have to choose one to focus in on uh, because. It, trying to focus on all of them at once is, is going to be extremely overwhelming, and so we forget a lot of things that happen. Uh, but something interesting that, that you both touched on, actually, was a lack of willingness to talk to each other, to talk to the other side. It seems like most, it seems like both of you have said that, you know, uh, either the right or the left is unwilling to talk to the other side. And, you know, it, in response to Peyton's question, which, is, which was, when is violence acceptable, it seems like that seems to be the only alternative. When, when we aren't able to talk or compromise is we, we get into these violent mindsets. Um, and so I, I just kind of like to explore that a little bit. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on, you know, why people don't want to uh, reach across the aisle, why people don't want to talk anymore? And if you think that that's ever going to change... Or if you think that people are just going to be, uh, get more and more violent and we're going to see more and more chaos. May I add um, something? Sure, Ellie. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I would like to throw out the notion that as opposed to political violence specifically, I would say that all politics has some amount of violence or force. Voting, even. 
this force. Um, maybe it's just I have arrived at basically all of my positions through pacifism, which I think negates any type of politics within a state. Um, culturally, I think there's something very interesting to talk about when you don't have to involve the state. When people get violent, it's a lot more noticeable and um, differentiated from the the violence that is inherent in any political system. Uh, okay. Uh, you, you guys want me to go ahead now? Yeah, go ahead. Right, so I was going to say, we, we can look at historical examples of what occurs when we are so angry with each other that we cease to stop speaking with each other, right? Um, maybe some of you are acquainted with this episode right before the Civil War, but um, there was a senator named Charles Sumner from Massachusetts, and Sumner was an abolitionist, and he was a very... Didn't he get uh, beat up? He got, like, yeah, he, he got, like, horribly disfigured and everything. Yeah, he was, um, he was a very, you know, staunch opponent of slavery, right? And, and one day, he gave a very scathing uh, speech of, um... Of this this guy from the south i can't remember his name but his the guy had a cousin in congress who was a congressman from south carolina i believe and um, his name was preston brooks and uh brooks took a lot of offense to this right because you know you have like this southern way of culture and honor right and so southern brooks uh decided to basically grab um, a cane right with a like a, like i think a silver metal tip and he decided to go to the congress one day while sumner was writing and he basically told sumner he said your speech is liable you've been told to me and my family my honor my way of life and he basically just swung at Sumner and he beat him to a pulp. Like Sumner's head was bloodied. He had to go into retirement after a few, uh, for a few years afterwards. And um, what, what occurred after this was that um, congressmen actually, after this episode, congressmen actually came to Congress armed with guns, with uh, blades. Uh, you, you had literal congressmen just because they were on, at this point, even people in Congress were scared of what their fellow congressmen could do to them, right? And what was most interesting to, to note, right, is yes, like this is a shocking thing, like you have a congressman insulting a senator, right, on the Senate floor of the United States, right? But what was most interesting to know about this episode in history, right, was that was that the reaction of the North and the South to this, right? Because this made national news, obviously, right? And and in the North, Sumner was a martyr, right? In the South, Brooks was enthusiastically praised. You had towns named after him. You had people send him canes. One even saying, hit him again. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> right? Sounds about right, yeah. And, and what, at this point, is historians say that this was actually one of the reasons that led to the Civil War. It was the breakdown of quote-unquote civil discourse, right? Where people were just so angry at each other that they couldn't, you just couldn't even be in the same room with them anymore, right? You just, their values were just so diametrically opposed to yours that you'd rather be the living hell out of them, right? Because it's just, what do we have to compromise about? Right? Like, we can't agree on anything. Um, and unfortunately, and I don't, I don't think that Congress are going to start assaulting each other, right? But it, it shows you an example, right, that when people get polarized enough, right, and the only other period in American history where we were more polarized than now was right before the Civil War, right? When things, when polarization reaches central fever peaks, right, people are done talking. People are ready to, like, tear down, you know? And, and there's really two options to that when the conversation is over. You can either kind of sit down, lay down, and take it from the other side. You concede. Um, you, 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 you know, you claim your defeat and you let them move on or violence, just to put it bluntly, because both sides are not going to stand down. Both sides feel strong enough in their convictions that, yeah, I think that moment in, uh, Congress, what year was that, Calvin? Do you know? It was like eight, it was 1850 something. Oh, yeah. I, have to look at I mean, but it was, you know, if, the if ever there was a literal tipping point to okay i guess we're moving on to, you know plan b which would be violence uh, it would have been that moment and a very famous moment too yeah 
Um, the King of Charles Sumner occurred in the year 1856, uh, four years before the Civil War, uh, a year before, I think, um, uh, the Supreme Court decision. Um, so yeah, you know, this stuff was rapidly, you know, with the, the very odd thing, right, if you study the history of the Civil War is that things broke down quickly, right? Like, if you had asked someone in 1845, did you think the Civil War was going to happen in 15 years, they would have thought you were crazy. Right, um, a lot of it was just the, um ability to have so much information at a time and we're talking about times where the pony express i think was still the predominant uh, method of information um logistics mm -hmm. so but nonetheless i think they did have the, the telegram by then i think i think they did but i mean that was that was a, the big technology that, that was like for, for more sure. for the military than for the average right. person but, at uh, that point, my I think. point being relative to today the information spreading i think is a huge contributing factor to what we look at as today's polarization so we see everything almost in real time every major event that happens everyone who's even just you know marginally paying attention is aware of it and it's the next day's gossip so so i wanted to pitch a, a question because i'm kind of interested in what each of your opinions are on it specifically because i think both of you said that there is a certain point where political violence is acceptable and I want to see how that reflects on your policy on gun ownership and, you know, should private citizens be allowed to own weapons for when things do get violent? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Alvin, I'm done. Okay, so, you know, uh, you know, so you know, I remember the Obama years pretty well because, you know, I'm 24, right? And something that really, really always caught me, I just didn't understand what the right, right of the country was that this affinity for guns, right, and this fear of big government, and this fear of the other side, right, and to an extent, I really still don't understand, well, I understand, I just don't agree with it, let's just put it that way, um, right, but, you know, what, what the Trump era has actually made me realize is that, um, it's actually, in a way, it's made me more pro-gun, because I don't, I just don't, it's not that I don't trust the government, right, because I don't think that the government is inherently a bad thing, right, I don't trust the people in the government, right, I don't think that Trump is going to come kill start like a you know like a um, post martial law or anything like that it's gonna happen right? we'll take away your guns though are you an illegal immigrant no uh, i'm talking about uh red flag laws mm -hmm. oh right. totally those are my, 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 my point is though it's that my fear isn't the government it's not trump right i'm not scared of any of that stuff my fear is centipedes but my, my fear is is the fact that as a minority right i don't have to look in fear that some white supremacist might shoot me right because we've seen this we've seen this in charleston we've seen this in el paso we've seen this in pittsburgh we're seeing these frequencies of shootings where people are being scared they're gonna lose their numerical majority and they're getting violent right and you know i actually told this to a friend um a few months ago right a close friend of mine I said dude i saw actually my buy a gun dude i was kind of partially joking right because i just don't really like guns or care about them and i live in a pretty liberal area so i'm not really concerned about getting shot and killed but my, my, my point is though right is that uh joke was that i see a rising hatred towards people who look like me and i can i can predict a situation where hispanics are going to be shot and killed all over the place right and then this happened in el paso right and mm -hmm. what's actually happened right my friend my, i first told my friend he said i think you're fucking crazy right that, that's his response to me right and, and then you know he and then when this happened he looked at me like I, we want to say i'm sorry i guess you were right you know now i'm not saying this is going to happen every month or every week right? it's just gonna be some rampant occurrence right but you have that fear in the back of your mind now right it exists right it, it's there 
Um, and it's, I mean, it's just a thing. I mean, it's not even just that I'm a minority. I'm scared of being shot, period, because, you know, it doesn't even have to be racially, racially motivated, right? It, it, it could be something else. It could be some nut job, right? It could be There's hundreds of millions of guns currently yeah. in circulation. Like, that alone, uh, it's worth maybe some valid concern. So, you know, it, it, but, you know, that, 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 that racial element now, that's something that, yeah, I am concerned about now, right? And I was concerned about it even before El Paso. So that, that only, like, made my fears worse, right? Because what I had predicted had finally come true. Um, so, yeah. I, uh, I actually Ooh, understand. what the fuck just happened? <laughs> I don't know. Someone sneeze really hard? Yeah, but what were you saying, Novak? I, I definitely understand, um, Alvin's concerns. It's so bittersweet to see someone who is undisputably left embrace the Second Amendment. And when you ask him why, it's like, in case right wing is trying to shoot me, like, oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Like, I guess it is fair enough because it's it's not. I don't think you know it's it's a un unrealistic uh, scenario, but it's frustrating that fear of white people is is one of the big you know incentives uh, to you know become a Second Amendment advocate. Where do you think, hmm. do you think he said right wingers? Is there a strong correlation between a strong, not necessarily correlation because there is that statistical correlation, causation between being right wing and being white? Absolutely. I mean, he talked about demographics and how that's a frustration for white people. That's there's just no doubt that majority of the of white people, to one degree or another, are frustrated, maybe scared, nervous, anxious. There's a lot of different emotions that come up with that, and. I never thought this was going to be a big issue. I, I, even to this day, even despite my own politics, I, I, I just cannot show hatred, feel hatred, embrace any sort of hatred to another race. But I became a white identitarian, one, because of the failure of the GOP, its elite, and the gaslighting of middle America, its neglect of middle America for decades. But then I looked at something that just tipped the scales, and I don't think a lot of people really know this or they know it on a very normy level and that's the voting patterns between the races when it comes to the consistency of voting one way or another so to answer your question Alec, i think it's like 85 percent to 90 percent of republican voters are white and it's been that way despite decades and decades of desperate campaigns to bring people of color to bring minorities to bring non-whites to the republican side and it's failed in a really radical way it's failed because of the self-destructive policies that Republicans put forward, but it's also failed because of the rhetoric, the propaganda, and the racial divides that have existed for the last, well, I mean, throughout American history, but certainly since the Civil Rights era. And this divide and this scar that is in America's racial history and the history of America itself is still very deep, is still a bleeding wound. And when I saw the overwhelming uh, racial differences between voting patterns, I knew that this is not going to change. This is only going to be more divisive. And that's so frustrating. It's, it kind of goes along with what Alvin said about most people don't really become, I mean, what it, an informed populace, an educated populace, an informed constituency, like that is just not how it works. It's very tribal. It's very uh, politically um, divisive. It doesn't help we have a two-party system. And at the end of the day, for some um, races more than others, you're going to vote on racial lines. And it's been that way for since data has been collected. And given the racial um, 
volatility of today's political discourse, I don't see that changing at all. Tribalism is an excellent topic, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, Peyton, you wanted to say something? I did, because I wanted to make a question to you since you're talking about the correlation between, at least in America, um, voting patterns and race. And my question is, what about countries like Iran? What about countries like Brazil? What about countries like, um, what's another good example? Pakistan. These, these, these countries, I would say, are very, very right-wing in the definition we gave. And basically what my point is here is kind of, is the way we're looking at right and left, at least in this conversation, going against our definitions? Because while minorities overwhelmingly will vote for the Democratic Party, they're not really voting for the left or at least left-wing policies, at least a lot of them are, you know, especially if they're coming from Islamic countries, they may be voting for Democrats, but the policies they actually want implemented, if you look at the surveying of them, are way, way closer to right-wing policies. And my question is, is the way we think of right and left different based on our race? I don't think so. I think you gave uh, a couple good examples of, like, Brazil is a perfect example of a very multiracial nation that has, you know, a large mixture of different percentages voting one way or the other. Now, you could probably still find clumps of certain ethnicities voting one side consistently as opposed to the other, but a lot of evidence suggests that, and I don't want to go too far off on this, but I just want to say that I think a lot of this is within the context of the United States, that the narrative, the racial history, and the current propaganda that's coming from both sides has really solidified a racial divide when it comes to uh, their political advocacy. I think that there isn't inherently a racial difference. I mean, well, perhaps not. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that suggests there's even a genetic factor to your politics. Certainly a uh, correlation between your personality and your voting patterns. Um, And Jonathan Haidt, who me and Alvin discuss frequently, has done a great job looking at this. And uh, there's also a lot of good evidence coming out of psychology when it comes to the big five um, psychometrics that there is a, I think, 0.4 or 0.5 correlation, uh, maybe even higher, um, that correlates with your personality and your uh, voting pattern. And it's not hard to see once you see what where the disparities lie. For instance, people with a higher uh, level of openness are going to be more likely to vote to the left as opposed to the right, which makes perfect sense, right? Egalitarianism, open borders, empathy, uh, marginalized groups, like all of these will correlate with someone who's more open to seeing changes, where the more traditional aspects, the more traditional people, which happen to be predominantly white, if we're looking at it within the United States, uh, context of the United States, are going to be less open to change, less open to other people, somewhat more implicitly xenophobic, more explicitly with others, not all, um, to these changes and to these different groups. And so naturally there's a conservative bend and it just happens to be the majority population. I think that if you were to switch, this is why I, I don't accept the whiteness rhetoric or the whiteness academic literature that's coming out that shows that there's a uniqueness to being white that changes the cultural uh, milieu of how certain dynamics work. And what I mean by that is If you were to replace the white majority in the United States with another race and see how that race reacted to the current political system, I think you would see very, very similar reactions politically 
um, from this well, majority, majority population. So. Look at Japan. They are completely resistant to new immigrants. They're completely resistant to change and new peoples. You can see this in a lot of nations around the world. Um, back to Middle Eastern nations. Middle Eastern nations are very resistant to having immigrants, even if they are very culturally similar. Look at Saudi Arabia, who has accepted, I think, zero refugees from the Syrian crisis, despite having the capacity to do so. And there's even this like big area in the desert full of air-conditioned tents that they could be housing refugees in that they refuse to because they do not like Syria. I mean, there's a lot of validity to the frustrations of people on the left when they're looking at how white America is reacting to it. Um, a lot of it's overreaction, a lot of it's unnecessary anxiety, a lot of it's valid, which is why I stand where I stand. But my point is, is look throughout the entirety of history and show me one situation where a mass population movement into another geographical location did not create conflict with the native population that was there uh, you know, previously to the to the movement. It's it's always happened. Now, that doesn't justify any sort of violence or political tension, per se, but there's also nothing surprising about how the reaction of many people on the right are, are perceiving this. It is a political threat. It is a demographic threat. It is a disenfranchisement of a particular demographic, and it's happening really, really fast, really quickly. And the left is very aware of that, which is why I think um, at least on a subconscious level, there's, from their perspective, no longer a need to uh, cooperate or compromise or have any dis discourse because it's my opinion, and I think many would share this, that they see the future, they see the short and long-term future and realize that they are going to be the overwhelming population uh, voting bloc on a national and a majority of um, states within the United States in a very, very quick time frame. So why compromise when you know you're going to win in the short-term future? Why compromise when the right has nothing to bargain with and the political rhetoric and the current tension that's happening, and this is another reason why I think there even is a um, contradiction with a certain, uh, let me just cut to the chase on this. There is such a tribalistic and racial element to the voting right now, which is only being accelerated by media, by information and propaganda that Races that are not white, who have conservative values, will still predominantly vote Democratic. And that is a racial consistency that you see across the board, specifically with Black America. And there's a lot of evidence on this. And it's a perfect example of how tribalism runs very deep. And there's no greater collective uh, solidarity against the other, big O other, than within race and ethnicity, and it's being used on a political level. And I blame the Democrats and I blame the left for doing this, perpetuating it, and using racial politics to continue to divide the country. The right is still responsible for a lot of this. The reaction to the from the right has a lot to do with this, but this came from the left. This is perpetuated by the left, and they're going to win with the current strategies they have because of race. And I find that to be disgusting. So, yeah, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to that first, Alvin. But after that, I'd like to quickly, uh, you know, just change the topic to tribalism before we go into, you know, uh, concluding statements and, and you know, uh, wrap up uh, uh, the opinions that you guys have and maybe what you have taken out of this. So, Alvin, go ahead. What do you have to say about that? You know, I really agree on this. Like, we have different political persuasions, but we see the same future almost, right? Like, we agree on a lot of things, right? 
say was you know it, it's funny that before i go into my response it's funny that that if me and him were to say this out loud to people people would think we're crazy <laughs> like if, if you were to sit down with the average voter and explain to them all this they would think we're fucking crazy right um because it's a lot to take in right it's mm-hmm. a lot of on it's a it's a lot of you know sad truths of life right but that's, well, there's I mean, so much conversation that has to build up to even discussing it on this level that it comes at him comes out of nowhere but right. sorry continue right yeah right and so and so you know it, it's I really hope that you know things go up. But what I want to say was that I maybe I'm wrong, right? And maybe this is my bias, right? So I'm I'm, I'm taking that into account, right? But as a minority, right, as as a, as a Hispanic American, right, I know for a fact there's people in my family that would vote Republican if they just stop they just stop being xenophobic, right? Like they agree with the Republican Party on things like abortion, right? Some of them even agree on things like welfare. My father, right? My father was a massive Ron Paul supporter in 2012, right? Does not like the social safety net. Does not like people mooching off the government, right? He wants he, his ideal candidate would be a libertarian, right? Someone who likes immigration, but at the same time is not going to you know increase the size of the government to like you know provide social safety programs for other people right but as he saw that the republican party became more xenophobic he just he just can't support them anymore right like he's completely flipped to the other side he just does not and to the extent it is tribalism right because what the republican party is essentially telling him is we don't want your mind here we don't we, we don't care if we don't agree with you on economic policy right like you don't look like us so we don't want you here i think and, it's a little more complicated than that but go I'm ahead. sure, right? But what I want to say was that Novak claims that this is coming from the left, but in all honesty, racial politics from the left is just nothing but a reaction to the racial politics the right has been Not playing anymore. since the... No, 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 Novak, it is, it is, because the right has been playing racial politics for decades, for decades, right? And you had such a superior numerical majority that people didn't even notice the white identity politics, right? Now that whites, now that white identity, right, has become reactive, right, where white people are becoming more conscious of their white identity, right, it's becoming more apparent to everybody, right? Okay. Yeah, this, so, this, white, this white identitarian politics is nothing mm-hmm. new. You have people literally just go back as far as I mean, yeah, we absolutely like there has been multiple huge instances of white identity showing its dark side in the United States. We have the two ways of the Ku Klux Klan. You have all of the racial bigotry, all the systematic racism that came from Jim Crow, that came from pre-1960s America. And there are multiple different instances we can look at today, um, maybe not perhaps today, but from 1960s to today, that were undisputably racist. Whether it's redlining, whether it's, oh gosh, there's all kinds of different things. But uh, my point is, is that when you look at it today, and this is something that I, I've never asked you, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this now. If the majority of white America has been so historically racist, why is there a lack of racial consciousness for the majority of, well, I guess post-1960s until now? Why is white identity now becoming an issue? Like, there has been a huge, huge push for there to be a civil, a civic nationalism, a value-driven nationalism, a one that encompasses race or doesn't make it a factor when it comes to solidarity. And are you this asking is why, all, well, I, my, I guess, hold on. Are you asking why white identity is reactive all of a sudden? I know why it's happening now, but my thing is, is in a world where there's been multiple decades of white America not voting explicitly because of their race, how can you look at the right as explicitly racist? And the last thing I want to ask you, because I hear this all the time, and it is, and you gave the example of your father, who props to Papa Alvin for being a libertarian. That's awesome. But my thing is, is he says, you know, I would vote for the right if it wasn't so xenophobic. Well, what if I showed him the voting patterns of races and how they've voted consistently, no matter how many campaign strategies have been put out by the right? 
that there's always in in i mean the, a lot of it's just the grasp the democrats have on people of color like what do you think they're going to let go of huge voting blocks not going to happen and so i don't see it as much prior to 2016 as xenophobia and racism as much as conservative values that the, you know the political elite on the right have completely dismissed you're only seeing these types of xenophobic and exclusionary nativistic types of reactions now and it's being used as an excuse of well this is why we don't vote for the right like please it's not going to happen and this is exactly my point when i brought up the racial dividing lines when it comes to uh, voting patterns between ethnicities in america that no matter how hard we push that our values are better not for the white man but for you you on an individual level you for your family you for your community you for society for us as a nation it never worked ever and the excuse is well i don't want to vote for racists like you're not voting for racists you're voting for something that's going to make your life better but that message has failed time and time again because it's the easiest political strategy in the world we may not give you what you want but you're not going to vote for the racists on the right and that's been simply enough to keep generation after generation of people of color voting for the left and that's not going to stop Okay, um, hold on, hold on. Alvin, Alvin, uh, you, uh, I'm sorry, this might seem unfair, but I'm going to give you only one minute to respond to that because we, we really do have to move on and uh, wrap, wrap things up. So, uh, Alvin, good luck. You're on the clock. I mean, what I was going to say was is that both parties basically were the white party until very recently, right? All you have to do, all you have to do is go back to the 1990s, right? If you read the Democratic platform on immigration in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, it sounds something straight out of Donald Trump's mouth, right? And so ever since the 1990s where you have a massive influx of Hispanic and Asian immigrants into the country, right? You have the white, you have the white votes just drift or gravitate towards the Republican Party, right? All you have to do, right, is look at the voting patterns of white Americans in the, like, as recently as the 1990s, right? In the 1990s, they about broke evenly. Whites were voting about even between the GOP and the Democratic Party, right? But as the Democratic Party, right, started to gain more of the Hispanic vote, right, or the Asian vote, right, they had to change their platform on immigration. So, and you can even go further back, right? White identity has always been there, right? It's just dormant in a way. It's always active, right? After the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement, who did you elect? We elected Richard Nixon, who employed a Southern strategy, who took in the Southern Dixiecrats, right? This stuff became a lot more subtle, a lot more... Alvin, you're at one minute. It's Finish up. Been there. It's always been there. All right. So, um... That, that was a, a great exchange, uh, to be honest. I really enjoyed listening to that. But I'd like to ask everyone here a question. Uh, what do you think is has been the most discussed thing so far on this podcast? If I if I were to if you were to guess one uh, type of word, one category, what would it be? Well, what have we discussed the most? Does anybody have any ideas? No. If I had to put it to one word, escalation. It's sort of evolved around the perceived inevitability of the political divide getting further and further and the implications that arrive from that. Well, go a little bit deeper than that. Escalation about what? I, I think what we can all agree on is that what, what we've discussed the most has been labels. We've, we've talked a lot about the left and the right. And, you know, whether you want to call it liberal, conservative, uh, Democrat, Republican, whatever you whatever you want to call it, it's labels. And to be honest, I I I'm not supposed in this in this podcast. I'm not really supposed to have much of a say. I'm supposed to be more of a moderator. But I will say that I think these labels are completely irrelevant. And what matters is the ideologies and the the ideas and the facts and the evidence behind them. 
and we, we get out of this topic here of, of tribalism, which uh, will be the last topic that uh, we're going to discuss before closing statements. Um, and, and really quickly, uh, what I, what I want to mention is most people, either on the left or the right, uh, who have been there for, say, a while, like like you, uh, Alvin, and you, Miss, uh, Mr. Novak, um, you seem to have made up your mind. Uh, and I'm not saying that you're not open-minded and willing to discuss things. What, what I'm saying is that both of you think that you are right. And I, I'd like to throw this idea out there. Do you think that there is an objective truth, one solution that is going to work? Uh, you know, there there is one correct solution and that, you know, whatever anybody else says is wrong. And so I'd like to, you know, kind of move the conversation in that direction with uh, with tribalism, because that's really what we're seeing when, when we talk about polarization, is we see people uh, getting more and more invested in their identities rather than their ideas. Um, well, I don't know about Novak, but I mean, I've told Novak this, I have very low political preference. I don't really give a shit about advancing the Hispanic cause or any of that, right? Um, now, if you do threaten the group that looks like me, right, I am going to try at least defend my group, right, but I mean, at the same time, I advocate for the defense of blacks, of gays, of Jews, of whites, of everything, right, so it's not that, like, I'm advancing my group. Uh, ex excuse me, Alvin, I, uh, usually I wouldn't interrupt you, I just want to clarify that I wasn't, uh, say, talking about you or Mr. Novak in particular, I was just asking, you know, your thoughts in general, I wasn't trying to, uh, throw yeah, accusations. I was I wasn't trying to say that you that that you are both you know uh, heavily invested in group identity. I, I was just saying. Oh, uh, you're asking why people invest in group identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your What's your broader opinion of how identity is used in the political uh, political sphere? Uh, I don't know if this is the correct terminology, but I mean it's kind of like a heuristic, right? It's like people are lazy thinkers, and so they're more likely to vote right with the group they identify, right? Like what like people like your group already has like a certain your group already prescribed a certain worldview or values, right? And so, unfortunately, like I said earlier in the podcast, most people don't really sit there and really scrutinize their beliefs they're given at birth, right? Um, and so, I think people just say, hey, you know, like, my aunt, my dad, my community vote a certain way, this is the values that we're taught, I think it's correct, whether you're a liberal or you're a conservative, and then, you know, some people just vote, right? So, people are using, like, mental shortcuts to vote a certain way. Yeah, I, uh, I agree completely with what he said. You know, what's frustrating about the racial dynamics that are happening right now is me and Alvin have a huge amount of overlap on political, social, and ideological things that we do agree on. Things that I think we would we both agree would be beneficial to all races, to humanity in general. And I still desperately want the wellness and the amount of suffering in this world to be reduced as much as possible. And there's no preference on race. Um, the reason why I'm where I'm at, and I'll answer your question at the same time, is there is a current political agenda that is prioritizing certain races over others and there's a huge dispute about why that's happening and why it isn't but the bottom line is is i agree completely with what you said earlier um identity is very superficial it's lazy it doesn't really give the nuance and the uh the perspective of people's ideas beliefs and uh, considerations the way it should it's more meant in a malicious way or a um, a way to dismiss the other person on the grounds of, well, I assume that because Alvin and Ellie are egalitarian that you know, they don't care about X, Y, and Z, when that's probably not true at all. Or maybe it's more true with them than others on average. But the fact is, is that identity, despite its superficial nature, is really important to people. And this will segue perfect, perfectly with tribalism. 
people want to know what you represent and people are way too lazy on average to really ask the in-depth questions to have an understanding of what you believe in people just want to know well are you this or that are you right or left republican democrat and so it's 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 a way to rationalize your reaction to these other people and at the end of the day despite identity being a very shallow way to identify or um, understand and recognize others it's very helpful when it comes to politics it's a very primal way to have uh, in-group or out-group preference and it's not going anywhere unfortunately yeah it's not uh, we would agree there again i mean it's just endemic to the human race <clears throat> all right um Ellie, uh, Peyton, do you guys have any thoughts on tribalism before we go into uh, closing statements? Um, I do. I do, actually. Um, I will say I think tribalism is bad in certain senses. So I'm no, I'm no identitarian based on race or sex or sexual preference or ethnic group or religious group. But I will say I have lots of in-group preference for those who are ideologically similar to me. I personally believe in a doctrine by uh, the great Hans Hermann Hoppe <laughs> called physical removal. And I believe that people of such radically different beliefs cannot live together. It will always end in violence. And I believe that cultures and peoples and ideologies that are too radically different just will never get along. And we see that throughout human history, that when you get rid of cultural homogeneity, when you get rid of some consensus, some basic agreement, which is what I think is happening with the left going further left and the right going further right, is that we're losing these basic fundamental principles we all agree on, that you inevitably see violence and you inevitably see the decay of a civilization. So, that's kind of my opinion on it. I, um, I'm nowhere near a Marxist, but I do think the analysis of the world by uh, the organization of class is very effective and very accurate. Most of the tribalism that we see can be boiled down to class. When, when we have tribal divides along the lines of, like, race or sex or how how people how like um a lot of people and not necessarily even activism like people will say oh these are sisters need to stick together and they're referring to women collectively or like um a lot of big tau people will be like don't trust women brother and those kinds of things it's what you can they're using that as a facade they're using race or sex or sexuality as a veil for the underlying I would call it greed for a type of capital that the other side has or may not have depending on what it is that they would like to have or perceive themselves as not having alright uh, All right, and you'll be the first to get a helicopter ride <laughs> okay, uh, I, I don't I don't remember who who said who said something first. Was it Al, Alvin or Mr. Novak? Who uh, spoke first in this podcast? The very beginning, it was Alvin. Okay, so Mr. Novak, uh, I will I'll let you go first with closing statements. You have as much time as you want. You can say anything that you want. We're not going to censor you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, go ahead. 
Unless, unless you want Alvin to go first. No, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead. Okay. I think that one of the biggest things I'd like to see from everyone, regardless of your political affiliation, is to actually seek out the truth. To actually find what's correct and what isn't. And this has been a broken record theme for maybe thousands of years. But the fact is, is we, we play too much on our biases, on our preferences, and we become so lazy. I would like to see everyone be a little bit more involved in what is actually going on, what the motivations of the elite actually are, and see whether or not there are more nefarious reasons for both the left and the right to do what they are doing. I think it all comes down to class warfare. I think there's a lot of overlap with race, but the fact is, is you know, the very top of the ones controlling the rhetoric, controlling the propaganda, controlling the messaging that's coming out, and too many people are falling victim to it without having the intellectual curiosity to see past the bullshit. The last thing I'll say is, Alvin is a great friend of mine, despite our differences, and if everyone on the left was like Alvin, we'd probably still have political differences, <laughs> but the world would be a much better place, and I mean that because he's someone who uh, approached me knowing what I, I believe in and where I'm coming from and had an actual interest in trying to figure out why I think what I think, and that courage that curiosity and that actual empathy to see what the other side is really feeling, why they think what they think, and what really motivates them politically has led to a great friendship that is just too rare when it comes to how polarization is affecting us in today's society. I think cowardice from the political, from the politicians is a lot of why this is happening. Fear of speaking the truth is always going to be a problem. Always. You can control the truth with a lot of oppression, with a lot of, of censorship, and with a lot of um, gaslighting, but inevitably the truth is going to rear its ugly head, and too many people have ignored it for too long. I would love to see us find some sort of compromise to move forward, but I think we have moved past the point of no return, and I think that happened with the election of Donald Trump. I hope that violence doesn't happen, obviously, and I pray that, the, you know, whatever does happen can be dealt with swiftly, and I think and I hope that no matter what affiliation or where you're coming from, we're all on this earth for one life. We don't get second chances, we don't get to try again, and we have one chance to make the world a better place, and I'll be damned if I let race be the reason that destroys us all. And so I hope we can come together somehow. But I have my doubts. Well, that's all. Um, even though you ended that on kind of, kind of a sad note, thinking that you think you know uh, things have gone a little bit too far past the point of no return, I gotta say that uh, that kind of warmed my heart and almost brought tears to my eyes. And I'm, I'm really glad that you and Alvin are good friends. Um, speaking of, Alvin, it's, it's your turn for a closing statement. Thanks. Um... I mean, I just want to say the things between Novak are pretty mutual, right? Like, uh, like he said, we're pretty good friends, right? We, we definitely disagree on some things, right? But that's okay, right? It's like, you can have disagree disagreements with friends, right? And, um, you know, speaking to him did give me a different perspective, right? On, like, white identitarianism and white identity politics, right? And this doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it or endorse it, right? But I, I understand the psychology and the mindset and the worries and the concerns, right? And I'm, I really try hard to find some solution. Um, 
right to assange the fears of people who may have the same concerns the same concerns as he does right like he is correct when he says that if you put any other racial group if black americans and hispanic americans are the majority you had a massive influx of other people who spoke a different language who looked different from them coming into the country right they would have the same concerns and the same reaction as white america is right now i think that's 100 completely true um now what i wanted to say though right was um i i'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than noah back um in terms of the future of the united states um in in regards that I, i i personally believe in a in a multiracial multicultural egalitarian country right where where we still hold true to the constitution where we still respect things like freedom of speech freedom of religion um i don't believe in abolishing the second amendment so yes i do believe in, in gun rights to an extent as well right so like these these things have been in the country since the very beginning right that some of the native population really cares about right i i i, I don't have any any diabolical plans to abolish those um right and, and this is you know there are concerns right from the right that if like a minority become the majority they're going to be hate speech laws right we're going to criminalize speech or my abolish second amendment right and you know what i'm saying is that i, I personally am not in favor of those things um right but what i think is going to happen right is that you're eventually going to you, you are going to see um you could possibly see the end of the gop with our lifetime that that is something that could occur um right and what i think is going to happen is you can have the democratic party possibly split between the moderates and the progressives um and that's going to be like the new two factions competing for power in the united states i personally more in favor of that because yes i do believe the gop uh does use odious tactics i do think that the gop does um race bait i do think the gop do- is not good for racial minorities or Jews or muslims so i mean I-, i do want the party to eventually either change and uh adapt to a new multiracial america or you go the way of the dinosaurs i don't know what else to tell them um and i mean unfortunately there will be violence um it, it's something that as much as we all wish wouldn't happen will keep continue to happen right but i really hope it passes some point right people adjust the new america people adjust the new sense of politics um and then we move forward right like yes unfortunately well i guess i don't really think it's unfortunate but yes a certain side of the country's views just will not be they, they just won't be represented in congress anymore or it, it's going to be a very regional based view right like you will have the mars and the progressives essentially take control of the country eventually um you know it is going to be a hard transition there right like it is going to be a difficult transition there but you know we we've gone through the worst you know it's not like america hasn't faced worse things in the past and that sounds plus shane i know it sounds cheesy right but i mean we fought off one of the world's greatest uh militaries to be born we had a bloody civil war we survived right like we came out of world war 2 as superpower right so we we've been through worse things than this and i think that eventually we'll figure things out right like right, right now you have two competing visions of america right you have the traditional white christian america and you have a secular multiracial multiethnic uh united states right and basically what we're the manifestation of polarization is that right it's it's which vision of america is going to be the united states in the next 3 to 50 years um because it could unfortunately only be one side but that's my closing statement okay um thank you alvin uh Ellie, I'd like to give you a, a chance at a closing statement if you'd like to say anything, and then uh, we'll we'll finish with me and Peyton. I've really enjoyed hearing this conversation. I don't have um, much to add to it, unfortunately. I've gotten all my thoughts um, a separate article that I've already written. I um, I really enjoyed hearing the thoughts of these two lovely people. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, Peyton, uh, would you like to say anything, or do you want do you want me to go first, and then you can have the last word? How do you want to do this? Um, I had the first word, so I'll let you have the last word. 
and basically what I wanted to say to encapsulate this is I think that the United States is heading towards a turning point and I think that things are only going to get more violent and I think that things are only getting worse and I think that as well I think that the paradigm of what's how it's going to go down though is a little flawed and I don't necessarily agree with either of our guests vision of how it's going to happen or what's going to happen how it's going to go down but I would like to say first before going into that is that I think that it's amazing that we can have people of such radically different beliefs come together agree on some things and actually be friends and I think that highlights the issue with the United States is that radicals are better at being civil and actually discussing these things through than your typical normie Republican or Democrat and I think that highlights a lot of the problem we have right now but specifically into their paradigms I think they look at it too narrowly as left versus right when in reality I think there are a lot of for control and I think that it's going to be a very very interesting situation that is really hard to predict how it will go down okay uh, yeah uh, throughout this whole episode I mean we, we've talked about so many interesting things uh, some so many things that I hadn't even thought about before uh, you know as usual this episode did not go how I thought it would at all and th- that's a good thing, by the way. It's, that's not a bad thing. I, I really appreciate uh, how this turned out and uh, for all of you being here and for Ellie being a wild card in the discussion. Um, so, in, in terms of what I have to say for ending this episode, um, Peyton picked the last topic, uh, which was um, the future of capitalism. And this is a topic that I had wanted to talk about for a very long time and is, in fact, central to why I, partially central to why I wanted to create this podcast to begin with. Uh, I look back in history and I see so many times of struggle where people have, you know, uh, disagreed to such an extent where we turn to violence. And then I also see in history the exact opposite where people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, although extremely ideologically opposed, can be best friends. And to me, I I wonder, you know, what's going to come in the present? What is our present going to look like in the future? Are we going to find a way to come together, like uh, you and Alvin have done, Mr. Novak? Or are we going to tear ourselves apart? We have this broken two-party system in the United States. Uh, We've got gerrymandering. We've got gridlock. We've got slander back and forth. I mean, watching watching the elections is literally like watching a sports match. Uh, The the news the the news media the corporations they they hype it up on television and you see ads and you're like, holy crap, is this a is this an advertisement for a movie? Am I am I I going to the movie theater? What's happening here? And we've totally. Uh, thrown in way too much drama into our politics but we've also thrown in a lot of fear and something that we've talked about that we ended up talking about which uh, I was very glad that we got we we touched on this was people's reluctance 
to talk about politics with people. You, you know, in school we're told this is not the time or place. Uh, it, it, even in Boy Scouts, in my Boy Scout troop, I remember we were always told this is not the time nor the place to talk about politics. And that to me was was really, really sad because it, it, what it said to me was that we've lost the capacity to have a civil discussion about what we believe and about the important values. Um, and, and that's that's something that's very concerning going into the future. Something that I would like to see changed. Uh, and and that's, that's really all I have to say is just to anybody listening and to everybody who's here right now, be willing to be wrong. Be willing to hear what other people have to say. And, you know, make yourself better by doing that and make the world a better place by doing that. If we can, if we can do those things, then we might be able to avoid violence. We might be able to avoid a great deal of suffering in the future. And I'm not certain what's going to happen either way. But I am very idealistic, and I really hope that we can come together in a way like Alvin and Mr. Novak and like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And um, that's really all I have to say about this topic. So uh, thank you all for being here. Um, yeah, absolutely. And if you'd like to come back uh, you know, another time, we, we'd be uh, very happy to have you. Ellie is a return guest. Thank you, thank you for being here again, Ellie. Thank you for having me. Um, just a, a quick few things about the podcast before we end this. Uh, we are aware that you know there has been uh, long gaps in between the episodes. We are working hard to uh, get episodes out there faster and with better quality. Um, I don't really have any other announcements for the channel or for the podcast. Besides that, we are also on other platforms now. Uh, you can see all the platforms that we're on in the Discord, and we'll put them in the description of the video as well. Peyton, is there anything else you'd like to add before we end the episode? Um, in addition to being on other platforms, we now have social media, so you can oh, yes, we're back. Back. social media. Um, we have a Facebook, a Twitter, and we have an Instagram. Um, I, and I'll put all those on screen in the, in the description as well. Yes, please do that. And, uh, yeah, suggest following that for updates on new episodes, new content, and, you know, if there's any other information we'll get out, we'll try to put that on our social media. All right, and uh, that wraps up the third episode of this podcast. Um, uh, once again, just about an hour and a half. Thank you all so much for being here, and thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you all next time. Oh, thank you one, one last thing, Peyton? Did, did you have uh, something no, to say? No, no, I'm just uh, an idiot. Oh, okay.